Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. I'm excited because as we are continuing to journey through and move forward in this book of Titus, uh, we come to this issue of leadership and that we are, that there needs to be people who lead by example. See, whether you realize it or not, whether you like to admit it or not, we all lead to some extent. And the question that you need to ask yourself today is this, is the, is the example that you're leaving one worth following or is it one worth avoiding? As I was thinking about that this week, I, I was reminded of uh, not too long ago, but it seems like it was a long time ago, um, long before we ever had GPS on our phones, long before we ever had um, uh, maps and other things in our cars and other devices to get us where we needed to go. If you had never been to a place before, but you had family or friends who had, one of the things that you had to do was you had to follow that person. Anybody remember that? You had to like take two cars. You had to go somewhere. Yep, that's, that was me. If that's what I remember doing. I remember I had a friend and he was like, all right, Nate, we're going to go to this place and I can't wait to go there. I haven't been there. He's like, don't worry, just follow me. I'll get us there. Okay. So we would hop into the two different cars and he would take my friends, but I hated following my friends because they were the worst drivers. They like zigzag all in and out of traffic because they're just so excited. They want to get to where they want to go. And so they're zooming in and out of lanes and, and they're like 20 cars ahead because I can't keep up with them. And, um, you know, they don't use that thing. I, some of you probably don't even know what I'm talking about. You know, that indicator that tells you which direction you're going. Some of you aren't laughing because you're like, oh, there is like, I don't, you never, you don't drive with one. All right. We have those things. They tell us which direction we're going to go, what our intent is and, and all of that. And I had a friend, he never used those. He always was like, ah, oh, I'm just going to zigzag and pull off, turn a right here, pull off the ramp really quickly over there. You know, it was just the worst. Saw a yellow light, would floor it through the yellow light, and I was stuck. And, and so I hated that. I hated following my friends in, in, to get to the destination because they didn't set the right pace. They didn't think about me. They didn't think about my other friends. And sometimes they'd be annoying. They'd be like, come on, Nate. Like, can't you keep up? You're like an old man over there. And it's like, no one can keep up with you. Like, you're, you're crazy. But here's the reality. If you are following someone, you slow down. You use those indicators. You know, I'm going to go right here. I'm going to go left. Uh, you know, you're gonna, if you're going to change lanes, you leave enough space not only for you, but for the person following you. You're not going to follow your natural instinct and just accelerate through the yellow lights. You're actually going to slow down and stop and wait for your friend to catch up. Because when you look in that rear view mirror, you go, hey, somebody is following me. See, your, your, your decisions not only impact you and whether or not you make it to the destination safely, but it also impacts the people who follow you. And so here's the point. Whether you realize it or not, you have a leadership role in whatever sphere of life you find yourself in. There's somebody you're influencing. There's some sort of leadership role that you're in, and we should all lead by example. In fact, the title of today's message is Leading by Example. So if you have a Bible, you have your smartphone pulled out, pick up with me in verse 5, Titus chapter 1. Paul says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put whatever remained into order. And appointed elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy words as taught so that he, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and so also rebuke those who contradict it. Again, Paul, the author of this letter, he's writing to a guy named Titus. And Titus is responsible for the church in Crete, a very influential city in the first century in the Roman Empire. And one of Titus's tasks, the first thing that Paul tells Titus that he needs to do is he needs to appoint leaders. He needs to appoint people in the church because things have gotten a little out of hand. It tells us in verse 5 that he needs to straighten out things that have gotten a little crooked. In fact, verse 5, some of the words translated there um, is where we get our word orthopedics from. And so Paul is telling Titus, hey, you need to straighten out what is broken, what is crooked, what got twisted there in Crete. And the first thing he says that he needs to work on, the first thing he needs to do to help get things in order, the things that got twisted and broken, is he needs to establish leaders within the church. Now, this passage that we just read here in Titus is about a specific office, a role of leadership within the church. But here's the reality. For many of us, we can uh, read this passage and one of two things can happen. For some of us here today, we go, well, you know, that, that passage, that's not for me. Like, I'm not in that role. I'm not in that office. That's for Pastor Dennis. That's for Pastor Devin. That's, that's for Pastor Nate. But that, that's not for me. I'm not in that office of leadership. So I, I could just check out, ignore what's saying, because this doesn't apply to me. The second thing can happen is we go, well, I don't desire that office, that role of leadership. And because I don't desire that and I'm never going to pursue that, well, this doesn't apply to me. So we kind of check out and we go, well, what's for lunch? Like, that's what we're thinking about because we go, this doesn't apply to me. This doesn't make sense. I don't really care what it has to say. But here's the reality. Here's what we need to know about this passage of Scripture, that these principles, these things that are said here apply to all of us because all of us leave an example for someone to follow. And so what we need to ask ourselves today is, does my behavior match up with my beliefs? Or is there a gap between those two? And this is so important because one of the most common accusations that I ever hear in the church is that the church is full of hypocrisy. Do as I say, not as I do, right? And some of you might be here today. You might not have ever gone to church. You might not even be a believer, but you're like, yep, church is full of hypocrites. You might even be a Christian, a believer, regularly attending church. And that's your opinion too, that the church is full of hypocrites. Because sadly, in the church, there is a gap between what we say we believe and how we behave. And what I believe Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to close that gap. And that's not only true for leaders, it's true for every follower of Jesus. Yes, make no mistake about it. This passage is about a specific office, a role of leadership within the church. But the character and the qualities he lists out should mark every believer. And now you might be thinking, well, why is that? Because now we're like, oh, I have to tune in. I have to check into what's going on here. Here's why. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you should never act as if you're only responsible for yourself. You can think about it like this. I know I've been guilty of saying this phrase before. You probably said this phrase before as well. But the phrase is this. Well, leaders are called to a higher standard. 
But this week, as I thought about these qualifications, what Paul is saying here, as I did some study and some research, I'm, I thought, you know, I'm not actually sure that that phrase carries the idea that we want it to have. I'm not sure that it fully describes what we're meaning it to describe. Yes, on one hand, leaders have a public role, and so their character can impact people. But here's what I thought might be better. Instead of saying that leaders are called to a higher standard, it's that leaders are held to broader accountability. For example, if I screw up big time, it not only affects me, my wife, my kids, my friends, my family, it affects all of you. It affects the church. I am publicly held accountable, but it's not like I have a different or higher standard. It says that a leader shouldn't get drunk. That doesn't mean that you can get plastered right after church. It doesn't mean that it was okay that you got drunk Friday and Saturday night. It says that a leader is to be faithful to his wife. That doesn't mean that you're like, sweet, I can be unfaithful. That's not what that means. I've had people say, well, you're a pastor. You're a man of the cloth. Like, you probably haven't heard this song or watched this movie, but I got to tell you this. And I'm like, I shouldn't listen to this. You probably shouldn't listen to it or watch it either. Because we, I, you are not held to a lower standard than me. We all have the same standard. But for the leader, there's greater accountability. And so we all share the same standard because every single one of us impacts the lives of others to some degree. And because of that, we need to pay attention to our character. There should not be a gap between what we say we believe and how we behave. And so I believe today, Paul wants us to close that gap and make sure that we are leaving an example, leading by example, so that people can follow. And so here's what I want us to see in the passage today. Three things. I want us to see the need for a good example, the marks of a good example, and the source of a good example. So let's start with the first one, the need for a good example. Start in verse five. Paul says this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was involved in the gospel efforts in Crete. And Paul was a church planner, and he called Titus, his man on the ground, his man for the job, to organize what was broken. And Crete is just like every other city in America. Uh, It was where all of the worldviews, philosophies, beliefs, religions would pass through and at some point would leave their mark in the city. But notice that Paul doesn't start off verse 5 by saying, hey, leave that pagan place. Get out of that dark place. Like Titus, just immediately leave. Don't even be there. Abandon all of it. He doesn't say that. Paul says, hey, Titus, live faithfully in that dark place. Live faithfully there where you are planted and make sure that when, as you live faithfully there, you appoint leaders who will do the same. It was strategic for Paul to flourish wherever it was that he lived. It was strategic for Titus to flourish in his faith where he lived. It was strategic for the church to be in Crete, just like it's strategic for us to be here in Clarksville, Tennessee for such a time as this. And a vital ingredient to having a faithful presence in a dark city, in a dark place where a lot of people don't want to hear the truth is good leadership and good examples to follow. Why? Because good examples are part of the gospel mission. The people around us need a visual aid for the gospel. See, they need good examples to point them in the right direction. 
You can tell your coworker, you can tell your friends, you can tell your classmates, you can tell your family about Jesus. You might even tell them about the change that Jesus has brought about in your life. But they're going to look to you to see what it looks like, how it works out, and what it means to have your life changed by Jesus. A good example is part of the gospel, and that is particularly true for leaders. Paul's like, Titus, there's some things lacking in the church. They need to be organized. And the first thing you need to do is you need to find people, find guys who are able to be lights in this dark place, who can help bring organization, can make sure the gospel's going forward, can make sure that, they have a, that people can follow them, have a good pace, that they could set this example for others to follow. And the way that you need to do that, Titus, is by appointing leaders, appointing elders. Now, what is an elder? Because we don't commonly use the word elder in our vernacular today, right? Like a lot of us, we don't have that. In fact, even as I said, elder, a lot of us, we have preconceived notions of what that means. For some of us, we have really, really good thoughts about it. We're like, oh yeah, I know what an elder is, man. I had great elders in my other church. I loved them. They loved me. They were caring. They were great. All of that. For others of us, when we hear the word elder, we might have the opposite view, that they were terrible, that they were uh, abusive in some way or whatever it is. For others of us, if you've never been to church before, when you hear the word elder, you might automatically think, well, that's just an older guy with a lot of white hair, right? Or I grew up out west in New Mexico, and so that's pretty close to Utah. And so if you hung around my friends, they would have been like, well, an elder is just a Mormon. Like, that's, that's who it is, right? Like, like, so a lot of us, we have preconceived notions when we hear that word elder, but what is an elder? Well, an elder is a biblical term, and it speaks of oversight, Now, we more commonly will say pastor, but elder is used alongside the word overseer and is sometimes grouped with that verb pastor. The way you can think about it is shepherding. That's what a pastor is to do. It's a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Cares for the sheep, loves the sheep, models for the sheep, cares for the sheep, loves the feed, sheep feeds the sheep. So what does an elder do or a pastor do? They guard, they guide, and they govern in the church. When Paul is writing this to Titus, he doesn't address all the particular responsibilities like he does elsewhere in the New Testament. But what Paul is saying here is, hey, Titus, guess what? God intends the church to have leaders, to have overseers, to have elders, to have pastors, to set the right pace, to set the example for others to follow. See, without leaders, things can begin to drift. And that's not good. Good leadership makes sure that things are flowing in the right direction. And their task was to teach the church and to make sure that the gospel was moving forward in Crete. Now, it's safe to assume that there were some things that were unfinished or needed to be completed. Things had gotten a little off track if these elders weren't appointed. We see the need for elders who set the good example, but good examples are needed all around us. We need people to set good examples from the youngest to the oldest for all the people in the church. People need to not only hear what we're talking about, but they need to look at your life and be a visual aid of the gospel. See, we can't do these like drive-by, well, I'm going to share the gospel real quick, throw a gospel track in somebody's mailbox or, you know, leave it on my classmate's desk or in their locker or I'm going to leave it at work just strategically in the lunchroom. Nobody needs to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just going to do this drive-by gospel track kind of sharing thing. And we can't do that. 
We need to tell people about the gospel. We need to tell them about the good news of what Jesus, that I was dead in my sins, that I lived a certain way, that I, I, I was in love with these sins, but God came in and he changed me. And now I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away and behold, new things are in my life. That's what we need to be telling people, the good news of the gospel, how Jesus has changed us. But we can't just talk them to death. We need to show them by our life. They need to watch your life and see how the gospel has changed you. And I wonder how many of you have ever thought about your life in that way, that people need to see the example that you leave. Your kids need to see the change that takes place in your life. Mom and dad say they believe. They have faith in Jesus, but can they see it? Mom and dad say, yeah, we have faith in Jesus for everything, but the craziness going on in our world, maybe the things that you're not expecting going on in your life, man, maybe you don't have as much faith and you have more fear. Mom and dad say they love the Bible, that they open up the Bible, that it's the word, but we really only see them on a Sunday, crack it open. They don't see them opening it and reading it and applying it to their lives. Oh, mom and dad say they love to pray. We're only praying at dinner time. That's the only time. But then there's also, if you're married or you're single, what's the example you're leaving to the people closest to you? Work, school, are you setting the right example? Listen, you might even be in the military today. And you might be like, well, I've got one, two, three years left. I'm gonna be moving soon or you know, I'm gonna change my duty station. I'm gonna change my job a little bit. So it doesn't really matter about any of that kind of stuff. Like, like it doesn't matter the example that I'm leaving there because I'm not gonna even see these people. It does matter. People are looking, people are watching, and we need visual aids for the gospel. Do we look too much like the world, or do we look like Jesus? We're saying we've been transformed, but are we living that out? We need good examples, and this is true for leaders, but it's also true for every single one of us. So we see the need for a good example, but now we're going to look at the marks of a good example, and that's our second thought today the marks of a good example. Starting in verse six, he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Here, what we see are the guidelines for leaders. And really what we're seeing here is the emphasis is on character. Notice again, we don't have a job description here of the elders and what they're to do in the church. We have a character description. And here's why I think this is important. Because we live in a world where we value charisma over character. After really, really gifted they're really, really good speaker. If they could get things done, it doesn't matter that they have immorality in their life. Oh, we can kind of turn a blind eye to how they live their personal life. I mean, they, if, as long as they get things done and they're speaking and saying all the right things, it doesn't matter if they're verbally abusive. Look how powerful they are. I think we can all think of actors, actresses, politicians in particular, who are that way. Oh, it doesn't matter. Look how gifted they are. Oh, look how great of a movie star they are. It's uncomfortable because we're talking about politics, but then it gets really uncomfortable when we shift it to the church and we start applying these things to the church. Oh, it doesn't matter that that elder or pastor is a total drunk. 
that he likes to kick back and have a lot on a Friday night? Oh, it doesn't matter that that pastor doesn't have an accountability. I mean, he gets things done. Oh, it doesn't matter that he's verbally abusive. I mean, have you heard the sermons he preaches? We don't separate gifting over character. God values character. And so what I want us to do is I want us to walk through this list. And I want us to think in terms of both elders and pastors in the church, but also every single one of us. Because I believe this teaching is really built on what Jesus said in Matthew when he's talking about service and leadership and humility, that you will know them by their fruits. And so Paul begins with some terrifying words right out the gate. He says that uh, they are to be above reproach. Now, your translation might say blameless. I kind of like blameless a little bit more. Maybe it's because it's a little easier to say. But what does above reproach or blameless actually mean? It does not mean sinless. Because if that were the case, I would be disqualified. You would be disqualified. None of us would ever be able to hold this office, right? Blameless does not equal sinless. So what Paul says is that above reproach or blameless, this is what he means, that there's no outstanding charge of offense laid against you. So here's a silly example. Let's say, let's say I'm not a pastor here at Awaken. And I walk up to Pastor Dennis. I'm like, Pastor Dennis, I really feel this call to be a pastor. Like, this is what I think I'm supposed to do with my life. And, you know, you know Pastor Dennis. He talks with his southern draw, and he goes, all right, Nate, you know, let's... <laughs> I got you, Nate. Let's talk about it, you know? Like, when you talk to Dennis, you just feel so much better. Like, he's just, I don't know, maybe it's that Southern, I don't know what it is, but I, I do feel better. And so he'll talk, and maybe, let's say he just talks to me about what it is, and, and then let's say a week goes by, and he comes back up to me, and he's like, hey, Nate, you know what? I hear that you're stealing from some people. I hear that there's some sin in your life. Oh, but Dennis, it doesn't really matter. Like, come on, grace, mercy. Like, it doesn't matter that I sold that. They didn't really need that. But Nate, you can't do that. You haven't repented. There's unrepentant sin in your life. Blameless, above reproach, doesn't mean you've never sinned. It means that there's no outstanding charge of offense laid against you. The point is this, when you've wronged someone or when there's sin in your life, you're quick to repent, quick to apologize, receive forgiveness from God and from others, and then you move forward. And as you do that, you live above reproach or blameless. See, we could say it this way. Good character is not the absence of mistakes. It's how we respond to them. Then Paul moves on and he says, faithful to his wife. Now, some people, they've used this to say that this excludes single people. I don't believe that that's what Paul's getting at here because it is believed that Paul himself was single. We know Jesus was single. And so as Paul is writing this, marriage is assumed, not commanded. But what Paul is trying to get at here is that if someone wants to be a pastor, an elder in the church, is their marriage healthy? This verse can literally be translated a one-woman man. And by the way, this refers to all areas of faithfulness. There's no pornography, there's no infidelity, there's faithfulness in the marriages of the leaders. And then he moves on quickly and he talks about the children. I'll simplify what he's saying here. Children believe and are not wild and disobedient. Now this doesn't mean that the child of every leader will automatically become a believing adult. The Bible never says that parents are responsible for saving their kids. Parents are responsible for pointing their kids to Jesus. If you're a parent, that is your job because you cannot save your kids. 
Only God can save them. See, as a parent, your job and my job is to point them to the one who can save them. And this is what I love about awakening kids. This is the thing I hear over and over about awakening kids. We don't babysit kids over there. We come alongside you as the parents, and we are trying to teach your kids, reinforce the idea by constantly pointing your kids to Jesus. And so we need to be faithful in how we lead our homes. Listen, we need to be faithful to pray for our kids, with our kids, and over our kids, and constantly pointing them to Jesus. And then when they're adults, they're going to have to make their own decisions, their own choices. We have to hold on to what it says in the Bible that uh, when they, uh, if we um, train up a child, that's it. If we train up in the child the way they should go, when they're old, they will not depart from it. But we need to be faithful to point them to Jesus. See, what I think Paul is trying to help us understand is that there's overall patterns. I don't think he's saying, hey, if you've screwed up, that's it, you're done. But I think he's looking for patterns of faithfulness in our lives. Then he moves on in verse 7. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Verse 7 could be better translated, manages God's household. Now, it's interesting to me to think of the church as the household of God. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way before. But here's what this means. For all of us, pastors, elders, worship leaders, media team, kids team, people who are on the security team, serving team, like welcoming team, whatever team you're on, awakening groups, wherever you're at, wherever you're serving today, we are to think of ourselves as a steward. And a steward in the ancient world was not an owner. They were responsible for managing something they didn't own. And the same is true for us today. We're all called to be good stewards in our life. And to be a good steward, it comes from understanding, one, God owns everything. Two, I'm entrusted with some of those things. Three, I'm going to have to give an account for those things. And because of all of that, I need to be faithful with the things that God has given me. That's stewardship. God owns everything. He saved us. We belong to him. Everything he gives us is a gift of his grace. And we need to be responsible and faithful with whatever God has given us, whatever gifts, talents, our spouse, our kids, our money, our resources, whatever it is, we need to be responsible and faithful with those things. A steward doesn't walk around and just say, well, what's owed to me? Don't you know who I am? But a steward walks around thinking, what's been given to me? A steward is often thinking, whoa, what what God has given me, what do I have? Where can I bring God the most glory and make Jesus big with what he's given me? And so in the church, this is the household of God, and we are called to steward it well. And then Paul gets really practical here, and he talks about how we are to function as good stewards, and we can put this into two categories, vices we must kill and virtues we must cultivate. There's five vices we must kill. It's arrogance, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy. And again, as we kind of make our way through this passage, I'm going to hit them real quick so we're all on the same page. But he starts off with arrogance, or we could say self-centeredness. Is this person proud? Do they have no regard for God's will or the needs of others? Do they walk around thinking they're the smartest person in the room? Well, it's my way or the highway. Are they a humble leader? Then he talks about being quick-tempered. A follower of Jesus is someone who's controlling their responses. Someone who doesn't have control over their responses and shows no restraint at all and only makes things worse 
They need to kill that sin. Paul moves on and talks about a drunkard. Now, I don't believe every Christian needs to abstain from alcohol, but drunkenness is a sin. If you're here today and your character is marked by drunkenness or substance abuse or addiction to anything, I don't care how big or how small it is. It could be, I just love to eat one extra cupcake, you know? Like, I like to be a little more gluttonous. I like to order a little bit more. I watch too many movies, watch too many shows, play too many video games. I don't care what it is. Whatever is on the throne of your heart and it is not Jesus, you need to kill it. You need to remove it. We shouldn't be addicted to anything. And he goes on and he talks about violence. There should be no physical or verbal violence that marks the lives of leaders and God's people. And then finally, he talks about greedy for gain. And that's looking for selfish profit. It is wrong to exploit the church and to take advantage of other people. Years and years and years ago, I remember there was this guy And he came and he said he had cancer and he claimed all these things. And I don't know if he did or he didn't. I think he might have. I don't know if he said that it was worse than what it was. I don't know. But he came up here and everybody, you know, the church was a lot smaller then. And so, you know, we all gathered around. We were praying for him and and we, 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 you know, we tried to take care of him the best that we could. And and so then he ended up getting involved in awakening groups and he moved from awakening group to awakening group to awakening group. And what he was doing was he was taking advantage of people. He saw people and he was trying to get his like things into people. He was taking advantage of others. I've had other people who move from group to group to group and they're doing nothing about their financial situation except just trying to play the same song to every single group so that they can collect as much money as they possibly can. And as one of the shepherds, as one of the pastors up here, I'm going to tell you, if you're here today and you're trying to leverage the church for your own financial gain or trying to seek seek sick your uh, things into people, then we are going to remove you because you are a wolf in this church and we will not stand for it and we will not allow it in this place. That is not going to stand for. But there's also, it's not only just financial gain, but it's for praise. There's greedy people uh, that want the praise. There's leaders that just want the praise of the people. I've seen so many pastors start off communicating the gospel, sharing the gospel, making it all about Jesus, but in the end, they start broadcasting themselves, making themselves famous. And Paul's words to Titus is, these people that you're considering for the role of an elder, you need to make sure that they're killing those vices. Here's the thing. In the same way, we need to look at our lives, and we need to be honest We need to say, are any of these characteristics marking me? Because here's the reality. It's so easy to coddle our sin. Be like, well, it doesn't, you know, it's okay. It's only this thing. It's not hurting anybody. Oh, it doesn't matter that I do this thing over here. You know, nobody knows about it. Oh, it's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. But listen, if one, two, five of these things mark your life, you need to repent of those sins. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to deal with it radically in your life. So we need to cut those vices out. But here's what we're to do instead. There's six things, six things that we are to do. And again, we're going to go through them quickly. The first is hospitality. This means that we are welcoming people, serving people, loving people. We want to look for ways to serve other people. Yes, in our church, but also in our neighborhoods, at our school, at our place of work. We're constantly looking to serve other people in our lives. Then he moves on. Paul moves on to the lover of good. This means that we are devoted to what is good for your neighborhood, good for the people in Clarksville, 
showing God's goodness in all areas of our life. We're abstaining from evil, seeking only that which is good. And then he says that we need to be self-controlled, which is the opposite of quick-tempered, right? There needs to be restraint in your life. This week, as I was studying this and and going through this passage, uh, I came across a word that's kind of gone out of fashion these days, and it's the word temperance. And I love that word. Because when you think about your desires, good desires, bad desires, the world's going to tell you, hey, just pursue your desires. You do you. Follow your heart no matter what. The Christian faith teaches us to temper our desires. And temper comes from working with metal. Meaning this, you have this raw piece of metal and it wasn't really fit for use until you took out a hammer and you started hammering away at it. You started bending it and molding it according to your purpose. And that's how we should view our desires. That's the idea of self-control. So you have a desire, a lustful desire, a greedy desire. You don't get a free pass to say, well, let me just be me. Let me do this. I have this desire. No, self-control. You take the hammer out. You're like, this is a raw desire, but I need to bend it into shape according, not to your purpose, but according to God's word. Then Paul talks about being upright and holy, which is about justice and fairness and living according to who God is and what God wants, that his character would shape ours. And then lastly, he says disciplined. And it's interesting that he puts this last because discipline is a practice, uh, is, is a practice that cultivates everything that Paul has just talked about. How do we be hospitable? How do we be self-controlled? Well, you learn the discipline of prayer. Well, how do I know how to be upright and holy? Learn the discipline of reading God's word. How do I know how to treat other people right? Guess what? Get into community with other people, praying, reading God's word, getting into community. Those are disciplines that we need to cultivate in our life. And then these attributes will flow out of it. Now we can read this and we could think, man, this is impossible. Like, I don't think I could do this in my own strength. And you're right. And that's what brings us to the good news of this passage, our third point today, and that is the source of a good example. All these characters, all these qualities that we just read should be present and growing in the life of every leader, but it should be growing and present in every life of a follower of Jesus. But here's how you should think of these virtues. They're not like a bag of marbles, but they're like a cluster of grapes. Now, some of you are like, that cleared up nothing. Uh, Like, (laughs) I don't know how that's supposed to handle me, but you know, okay. But here's what I mean by that. These virtues are not like a bag of marbles where you have to go out and find them individually and you have to collect them and put them in a bag. That's not what these virtues are like. But that's how people think virtue is like. I got to go find some hospitality. Let me come over here, find some hospitality, put it in my bag. I got to find some sort of uprightness. Maybe it's over here. Let me look, let me search, let me find it. Put it in the bag. Maybe I'll find it. It's not like a bag of marbles that you have to go individually, find each one, collect them, put them together. But these virtues are like a cluster of grapes. See, on the outside, if you were both to put marbles and grapes in a bag, they're probably going to look similar. You know, they're both circular, they're both round. It's going to look the same, but there is a difference. They all grow from one source, and that's the vine. From the outside, you're like, oh, I'm seeing the evidences. But on the inside, there's one vine 
that leads to them all, and that vine is Jesus. It's not like God says, hey, you need to go and you need to find some self-control. Okay, God, I'll go, I'll go try to seek it out and find it. It might take me a little while, but I'll let you know when I find it. It comes from one source, and that is Jesus. And as we cling to him, these qualities become a reality. That's why he says in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word doctrine in there simply means the teaching of Jesus, that we are saved by Jesus and sanctified by Jesus. See, what makes us trustworthy examples is the trustworthiness of Jesus. And Paul's warning here is that no leader, no believer, should ever water down the gospel or distort the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. You have to cling to Jesus. You have to cling to Jesus if you want to see these vices killed off in your life. If you want to see these virtues cultivated in your life, it doesn't come from your own uh, moral effort. Like if I could just do these things or your own personality or your own ability, uh, that it's, and that's the good news. It doesn't come from you. It comes from Jesus. I thought of it this week. If you've ever flown before, if you've ever tuned in, you know, they've got the emergency proceedings, right? Like, like the, the rundown of the things that you've got to do in case of an emergency, right, with the airplane, and nobody pays attention, right? Like I see people with the headphones on all the time, reading their book, trying to calm down their child, you know. But if you've ever tuned in, what do they do? They talk about a seatbelt, which if you've ever been in a car for the last 50 years, you know how that works, right? So that's kind of a waste. And then they tell you about the lights and the row, and they tell you where the emergency uh, exits are and all that stuff. But there's always been one. Ever since I was a kid flying with my parents, I always found very fascinating. They talk about the oxygen masks that fall from the ceiling, right? And I remember as a kid hearing, well, put yours on first before taking care of someone else. And I was like, that's so selfish. Like, they clearly don't have a dad like me. Like, I'm the only son in this family. Uh, He's surely going to take care of me before he even helps himself out. Like, that's very selfish. But as I've grown up, as I've matured as well, I've come to realize just the importance of that and why they say that. Because if you don't have the oxygen you need, you're not going to be very much help to the person next to you who really needs it. Without oxygen, I'm not going to be able to function in a good way, in a healthy way. I'm not going to be able to help you. Like if I don't put on the oxygen mask, I might put yours on your side of your head, like maybe on top of your head, on your knee. Like it's going to go somewhere else, right? Like it's not going to go in the right place because I'm not receiving what I'm offering. We need to put on our mask for first. We need to cling to the gospel. God is not asking you to demonstrate what he hasn't already provided for you. Hold fast to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. The way to lead well is to be well led. And there's no greater leader than Jesus. And he says, I'm going to lead you. Follow me. I'll take care of you. And as I lead you, you can lead other people. You can be that example for others to follow. As you're going through life, driving through life, you can look in that rear view mirror and you can see that there's other people following you. And you can say, you could use your turn indicators and go, oh, let's not go that direction. Let's go this one instead. You set the right pace. You set the right tone. 
You show them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And not only will you arrive at the destination safely, but others will as well. And so here's what we need to do in light of this message. We need to ask ourselves today, are my steps leading people to hope and to life and to Jesus? Or are my steps leading people to danger, darkness, and death? Think about who we have in Jesus. He is the ultimate leader. He gave us everything. Jesus came into this world. He adjusted his steps all the way to the cross. The Bible tells us that he knew no sin, but yet became sin for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. He took on all of your sin, all of my sin. He committed nothing, but he willingly went to the cross. He allowed his body to be broken, to be bruised, to be beaten, to go through all of this stuff, to pay for our sins. And he went to a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. And because of that, we can experience new life. We could be forgiven. We could be cleansed. We could be restored. We could be renewed. So that we would not only be changed by the gospel, but we can offer this life-changing message to other people. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.